Unless you've made a serious mistake, you are currently listening to a free excerpt of the committee program with me, Arun Chaudhry. Our show contains lots more global politics, and you can become a member at fans.fm slash committee to receive our full YouTube show, audio, plus other exclusive content. That's fans.fm slash committee. And be sure to check out our YouTube show every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Namiki Konst YouTube channel. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program. I am your host, Arun Chaudhry, and welcome to Deep Cuts. Today, we have uh, a friend of the show on, and so let's just dive right in. The global pandemic of COVID-19 hasn't changed our politics or society so much as it has revealed what it truly is. And as we've said on the show many times before, like there are no atheists in a foxhole, suddenly there are no libertarians in a pandemic. But what does this moment mean and what comes next? And what does it mean for populism, the anti-neoliberal project that resists political classification and is as squishy a concept as I've ever come across? To help us navigate these choppy waters is, as I said, a friend of the show, Paolo Gerbado, sociologist, senior lecturer in digital culture and society at King's College London, and of course, the author of The Great Recoil, Politics and Populism, uh, Politics After Populism and Pandemic, which just so happens to tackle these issues and just so happens to be in my hand and just so happens to be the reason that we're having this conversation today. I mean, thank you so much for all your efforts on this book and for being a good friend of the show and always explaining things to us. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Okay. Very glad to speak about my book. Show. No, no. Yeah, I, I know. And, and there's a lot to talk about, but I want just to let's give people a long wind up so that they know what's going on here. The kind of uh, what you're talking about is that we are on the cusp of a kind of new neo-statism, as you call it. I wanted you to define what you mean by that, but then also put it in a context of what has come before, just so that we even know what this kind of historical development means in the terms you're talking about. Fundamentally, the main argument of the book is that the state is back, big government is back, because of the failure of neoliberalism. Obviously, the state never went away. Right? The state is a fundamental component of any political system, of any institutional system. Uh, the fundamental, it's one of the three fundamental aspects of society, right? I mean, state, market, and civil society. But under neoliberalism, under this free market ideology that dominated the world for 40 years, there was this sense that the state had to be a very minimal element in society and that the market had to be uh, self-regulating, spontaneous, and so on and so forth. And this led to uh, certain politics, I mean, starting with Reagan and Thatcher, obviously, in the 80s, uh, mm -hmm. destroying uh, the interventionist state of the social democratic era that preceded the neoliberal era, and uh, led to cutting social security, deregulating finance, right? Uh, international, multinational corporations, globalization. Now it is all this system that is imploding. Fundamentally, globalization is imploding. And in this implosion, something new is emerging. I mean, a society and a politics that revolves more around an interventionist, an interventionist state, right? That could be considered a sort of new battlefield where new left, and right positions are slowly crystallizing. I mean, how much do you think this is a replay of the previous kind of Keynesian consensus that came out, and how much is there something new at the heart of it? 
it, it it has some reminiscences, obviously, of the 1970s and 60s uh, Keynesian consensus, right, which was very much about a more organized capitalism, right, because what we are witnessing fundamentally is a transformation of capitalism. But it also has a new element because it has to deal with a very peculiar world that is the world we are living in. It's a world of a stagnating economic system, right, which was not the case certainly in the 60s or the 50s. It is a war marked by major existential threats, starting with climate change and environmental collapse, biodiversity collapse. And it is a war where, where protection from a number of destabilizing uh, processes uh, and the pandemic and climate change obviously are very clear examples of these, in a way becomes that top priority in the political agenda. And you talk about this in terms of security and then kind of outline the kind of different varieties of security that people seek. I mean, is that is it this sort of sense of increasing crisis, whether it be in climate, economy? Of course, these things, you know, fuel into each other. But do you think it, it is sort of a sense of seeking security as a sense of foreboding and crisis rises both in actuality and in our psyches? Certainly, I mean, because... You know, at any point in time, there are always divisions in politics, right? There is always a left and right. There are always different camps that are fighting with one another. But there are also points of consensus, right? I mean, sometimes we overlook that. I mean, there are things on which the great majority of citizens of the population fundamentally agree, right? There are priorities. There are keywords that are shared across the two camps, now, in the neoliberal period, there was a, a jargon, a language that was very familiar and recognizable. It was all about opportunity. It was about entrepreneurialism. Yeah. It was about meritocracy. Yeah. It was about freedom. market freedom. Freedom, but in the narrow sense of market freedom. Now, instead, we have new uh, keywords, and uh, one of the key ones there is security. And interestingly, it's not a word that is owned uh, either by the right or the left. Perhaps we associated more with the right, means security yeah. from crime, security from migrants, right? uh, security from minorities. But actually, there is also a discourse of social security, for example, right? that has been uh, part of, of the left uh, identity for a very long time, uh, which is coming back, a uh, discourse of environmental security, a discourse also of security for minorities, for example, ideas of safe spaces. And for example, if you look at the discourse of someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, She's always actually alluding uh, at issues of security. I mean, in one famous declaration, she said that her task was to safeguard, safeguard American citizens, right? Or to protect citizens, for example, now in the famous uh, uh, situation now in the U.S. with evictions, the eviction ban, uh, she articulated that as something about securing citizens. I mean... To me, that speaks about the fact that the fundamental points of consensus in society are changing. And uh, we are living in a time when if you speak about uh, opportunity entrepreneurialism, I mean, people will look at you and say, I mean, this is no bearing on the world we live in. It's, not, it's out of sync with, with reality. And therefore, it's clear that all parties will try to articulate a different narrative that speaks more about... Um, fighting against threats, defending people from destabilizing processes that seem to endanger fundamentally our way of life, things we took for granted for very long and could, cannot be taken for granted anymore. Look, there's water and there's steam, but what's really interesting is right when the water becomes steam, you know? So sorry to keep drilling down on this exact moment, but, but I guess I am curious, 
like it wasn't like during the neoliberal period that this was that it was in the self-interest of the working and lower middle and in fact most of the middle classes to be part of this globalization project that redistributed wealth in a dramatic way to the wealthy right this wasn't something that would have naturally occurred to anyone it was a, a project probably started in the 60s 70s even before but you know people like the Koch brothers and invested a lot of money in telling stories about freedom and labor and, uh, and unions and how it all should work. Uh, and they haven't stopped that. They still do that. So I guess why has this fallen on, on more deaf ears now? I mean, is it the pandemic? Is it uh, uh, just 20 years of austerity gone wrong? Is it the populist moment? But what, 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 what is the what? I mean, it is, it is many things, and one thing obviously is populism, as you say. I mean, different brands of populism, uh, left populism criticizing the economic pillars of neoliberalism, in particular the kind of the minimal state, cuts to public services, austerity, uh, economic globalization, and so on and so forth. The right uh, attacking the cultural pillars of neoliberalism, first and foremost, right? Some sense of tolerance, diversity, multiculturalism and so on and so forth. But I think the interesting thing is that also capitalism is changing. Mm. In the sense that sometimes at, at some point when there are shocks, also the capitalist system needs to absorb them in some way. And there are parts of the capitalist class that have realized that that narrative is not working for them anymore either. Right? And this is, I think, also the reason why people like Biden that have surprised us, uh, have surprised us, uh, uh, quite a bit in, in recent months, are making certain choices. For a very simple reason. I mean, we have been through a decade, the 2010s, that have been marked by major economic stagnation. I mean, one of the longest uh, cycles of economic stagnation capitalism has ever experienced. And now any smart capitalist <laughs> wants to make money, ultimately. Doesn't want a system that doesn't make money, that doesn't work for them either. And I think they also, to some extent, realized that the reason for stagnation is stagnating demand. Demand in terms of consumption from families, consumption from individuals, is uh, uh, very low due to the fact that wages have been uh, pushed down uh, for such a long time, due to the fact that, that state investment has been decreasing over the last decades, which is the reason why in the US you have all these rusty stuff Right, that looks like something out of the 70s, yeah. rusty bridges, yeah. rusty uh, subways, and, and so on and so on, and so forth. So that is what I, I mean when I talk about a change in points of consensus in society. I mean, there, are, there is such a thing as ideological eras, right? And in a way, each generation has to deal with the mistakes of previous generations, and, and certain narratives only last for a certain time. At some point, they expire. And to me, we have now reached the expiry time for the neoliberal era. And so when you look at the U.S. and you see the struggles in the Senate over, you know, sort of making a big dent in investment or kind of uh, this is probably this is the last expression of this old kind of establishment is trying to just sort of block investment at, at, a, at a parliamentarian level, country by country. Is that where you see them, this sort of the big business pressure now? 
Yes, I mean, certainly what we see with Biden is uh, a scene of contradiction in the sense that the initial plans, particularly the infrastructure bill, was very ambitious. And now, just yesterday, if I'm correct, the, um, finally the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, was approved. It is a very watered-down version yeah, of the... Yeah. Yeah, of the initial promise, though there are, there is still something in that. Now, obviously, technically, we will need to see what the reconciliation bill will carry and what centrist Democrats, uh, to what extent they will resist uh, more ambitious plans being carried forward in, in the reconciliation bill. I mean, certainly, there is strong resistance from uh, the base of the Republicans, obviously, from some sectors of business that stand to lose out from this change in political economy. Yet at the same time, I think there is a certain critical mass also within certain sections of capital. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, they don't want uh, this new kind of post-neoliberal world uh, to be something nice or good for us. I mean, obviously, that is not the idea. That is not the idea that they have suddenly become generous and that they are correcting their mistakes. Uh, but I think that there are some sections of business too that look at globalization, look at neoliberalism, look at this idea of the free market and say, I mean, this is not working. And that also realize that with this situation of stagnation, <coughs> the driver, the economic driver in coming years is going to come a lot from public procurement, from public investment. Right? I mean, let's think about people like Elon Musk. Elon Musk makes a lot of money out of NASA procurement, right? That's not the typical uh, neoliberal enterprise model, making money out of the state. Same thing for the recovery fund in Europe, right? I mean, now there are many companies that are lining up trying to get some money from the state. Again, is a statist word, I mean, an interventionist state is uh, a, a word of the interventionist state, which doesn't necessarily mean uh, social democracy, uh, much less socialism, but is a very significant change in, in uh, uh, the balance of power, the balance of forces, the battlefield, ultimately, again. I think that's, that's a good metaphor. Where, where, where things uh, uh, play out. And that is going to be more the case with climate emergency intensifying. Mm. I mean, uh, in Germany, we're seeing that with the CDU, right, the, the right-wing party that has been long, uh, the, perhaps the most hawkish uh, fiscally and monetarily in all Western, on all the Western world, now starting to make some concessions. I mean, some limited concessions, but still concessions. Also, in the aftermath of the major floods we saw yeah. in Germany, I mean, when you see these uh, environmental disasters, it's very hard even for them to go to voters and say, hey, um, we don't have the money. We don't have the money to spend in order to secure your home, to secure your roads, to secure your rail railways. Also because people know that there is tons of money floating around. I mean, the problem in our society is that there's too much private money uh, floating around. And uh, I think that is going to change uh, the kind of the, the agenda and, and, and the priorities and what is speakable and unspeakable, ultimately the Overton window of politics. And then how do you see it sort of just uh, the, the, the political landscape mapping itself onto, onto this new order, right? If it is a question of uh, in relationship to the state, whether or not how public versus private the partnerships will be, right? Like how much it is a partnership between companies or how much it is actual state-owned property maybe on the other side. Like, do, do you feel like this will kind of rearrange some of the 
for lack of a better term, odd bedfellows that we find in the political parties. You know, for instance, Democrats in the U.S., you have Silicon Valley and trade unionists together in the same party, right? This is sort of, you know, not, not a natural situation. <laughs> Will there be reordering based on this? I mean, in the book, I propose uh, uh, a triad to make sense of current political positions, more kind of ideological positions, right? I mean, at the center, you have the neoliberal center, which is what was the kind of old point of consensus. And still, obviously, there are people who are very enthusiastically pro-free market, including mm -hmm. partly uh, Biden and people in the Biden administration. Then you have the nationalist right, a new nationalist right, and a new socialist left as ideological positions that have been emerging in the 2010s, fundamentally, as a result of political polarization, in a way that political space has opened up at the margins, right? And then you have different uh, concrete political actors situated in between these three points. Again, kind of the Biden administration is trying to juggle right, uh, its position between uh, neoliberal free market views and uh, the new socialist wing of the Democratic Party that has become increasingly influential, especially among young people, and that looks much more uh, on sync with, uh, with contemporary reality. I mean, that's why uh, Biden is doing that. And I think he's been quite smart, actually, uh, doing that, compared with other people, compared with his uh, social democratic counterparts. Say, for example, in, in Europe, let's look at the UK, where, where Starmer uh, has fundamentally purged the party from all the people of the Corbynista guard, but in so doing, he has also deprived fundamentally himself uh, of, of forces, of energies, of, of support, uh, and that is going to cost, has already cost him right uh, yeah. a lot in, in elections. And these new left and new right um, both articulate different visions of protections and security. Right. I mean, in the book, I use the term uh, proprietarian protectionism on the right because what the right, the main concern of the right now is protecting wealth and protecting established and dominant position. Establish and dominant position in global trade, establish and dominant position in terms of the internal economy, uh, to, uh, fence, uh, to fend off attempts uh, to redistribute some of the economic uh, uh, resources in society. And at the opposite end, this new socialist left instead is about social protectivism. It's about reinstating fundamentally fundamental forms of social protection, uh, safety nets, uh, provision, public provisions that are a fundamental support system in society, as well as protecting people from, from environmental collapse, which, as we know, is something that is not going to hit everyone equally. Rather, it's going to be very diversified. I mean, the rich are going to continue more or less with their ways, while it is the poor that are going to suffer, and what the left wants is instead providing some, raise the floor Right, of social conditions so that people are not uh, uh, drowned, as it were, by, by the flood that is coming in, in the coming era of floods, which is um, not just metaphorical, but unfortunately it is also very literal. And do, then do you think the kind of energy behind the populist movements that we do see, I mean, I think, and as you rightly bring up, they come in many different flavors, right? There's Podemos's sort of left-wing anti-austerity or, or Syriza, uh, you know, versus a, a, a movement like Trump's or Cinque Stella, which sort of is more, more ideologically flexible. Um, like, do you see it becoming more of a working class movement when it has been, populism has been sort of quite influential in the middle classes? And do you see it sort of realigning itself 
ideologically as well. Like it hasn't, it hasn't maybe even found its proper home yet, whatever this energy is that we see. Yes, I mean, in a way, uh, the book is an attempt to go also beyond the debate on populism, in a sense that I think it was very useful, a term in the 2010s, because it captures something that was going on in the political arena, uh, namely these uh, widespread and fundamentally cross-party uh, discontent about the neoliberal settlement, uh, and uh, uh, led to the most diverse <laughs> kind of, uh, of phenomena, right? I mean, uh, protest movements, uh, Occupy Wall Street, then the Gilets Jaunes, and many others, uh, new left parties and candidates, Corbyn, Sanders, mm -hmm. Syriza, Podemos, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Then, especially in, after, in, in, the, in the second half of the 2010s, uh, right-wing reactionary populism, Salvini, Bolsonaro, now Meloni of Brothers of Italy, yep. uh, Trump, obviously. And the problem for me, in a way, theoretically, was how often it looked, it, it returned a false representation of all these different positions as having something substantial in common, ah. which was obviously not the case. And also how the, the term populism uh, was used by neoliberal ideologues such as Yasha Monk uh, uh, of uh, Tony Blair's uh, uh, Global Institute or whatever it is called, saying, hey, you know, Evo Morales and Trump is fundamentally the same thing, yeah. which obviously it, it is not. And, and to me, instead, populism was more of a moment, was fundamentally this anti-neoliberal wave that came to the fore in the 2010s because of the uh, precipitation of all these problems of neoliberalism, and a structural moment. Obviously, when you have a society where social conditions are declining, the decisive section of the electorate is not anymore as it was in the heydays of, of uh, neoliberal globalization, the aspirational middle class. Mm -hmm. The middle class that wants to build a new conservatory or extend its garden or get a new uh, sport car. It becomes instead the lower middle class, the declining lower middle class, yeah. and the working class. So this was populism fundamentally is, is going back to the people. But going back to the people, constructing a people or appealing to the people comes in radically different ways on the left and, and the right. So populism was more of a, a moment of recomposition of a more, a more distinct left and right, uh, both fighting against the neoliberal center. Yeah, and I would agree with that. That's sort of the, the superficial similarities kind of do water down the discourse. Uh, and speaking of sort of definitions, uh, uh, you know, I think we are getting a, a good handle on what you mean by this neo-statism. But the title of your book, The Great Recoil, uh, also describes a phenomenon that you uh, go into about a kind of an inward, a contraction. Can you also talk about this moment in terms of that, which is as much cultural and psychological as it is anything else, but I think uh, extremely important and interesting? Uh, yes, fundamentally the idea is that there is a change in political topology in the way in which the space of politics is structured. I mean, we know that uh, wherever you look at political discourse and imaginary and symbols and so on and so forth, there is always an outside and an inside, which is constitutive of political communities. With neoliberalism, the sense, the rhetoric was outwardness, was openness, was going out, mm -hmm. was so-called externalization, right? This recurring term, think about outsourcing, right, of labor to uh, sub-companies, out-contracting, offshoring, uh, 
there was this idea or externalizing costs, which then was actually the, the reality behind many of these practices. There was this idea, fundamentally, the imaginary, if you think about it, was let's break the cage of social units, let's break the cage of the state and unleash the genius of entrepreneurialism, of finance, so that finally uh, it can deliver all the prosperity that it couldn't deliver because of this oppressive state uh, uh, that was blocking uh, entrepreneurialism from manifesting. Now, uh, in this Polanyan moment, you know, Polanyi said that there are, uh, um, there are expansionary phases of capitalism that then are uh, invariably ensued by moments of contraction. It is as if the direction of history has inverted, right? What was going outward first is now going inward, right? And actually, we already find that in a lot of social and political commentary. I mean, most notably, the reactionary uh, populist right was very much defined as a backlash. Yeah, it's kind right, of as a cultural backlash, uh, regression in uh, kind of regressive terms. I mean, almost uh, all, uh, invariably in negative terms. But inwardness is not just negative or necessarily negative. Obviously, it has a negative element. But as Polanyi suggests, in moments of crisis, society is forced anyway to look inward because it has to reorganize internally, right? It has to redefine its center, its center of gravity. Uh, examples of that, I mean, insourcing, people are now talking about insourcing as uh, to reverse outsourcing. Right. For example, in the NHS, in the uh, health system in Britain, where they have outsourced so much labor, so much activity. Now people are saying, no, let's bring back in-house. I mean, there's also this term that is being used. Let's think about this idea of onshoring or reshoring or nearshoring or farmshoring. I mean, it's very interesting this change in the jargon of, of, of capitalists because it, it speaks very much to that. To a great extent, also this post-carbon environmental change is about inwardness, is about bringing things back as it were. Uh, why is that? Because uh, a system that has long supply chains is fundamentally unsustainable. Global trade, uh, including you know, merchant ships, are one of the major factors of unsustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, many experts suggest that the economic system in the future will be more localized. I mean, the idea of circular economy, for example, is very much about uh, relocalization of uh, economic production, distribution, and consumption. Now, I mean, this is not to say that we are going back to whatever, the feudalism or <laughs> to a world that is completely insular and completely isolationist. Uh, that is not going to be the case. Uh, there is still going to be a lot of interconnectedness, cultural, economic, and otherwise. Yeah, always but it is clear that that completely uncontrolled interconnectedness that we've experienced in the last decades is not sustainable anymore. And also the political mainstream is starting to deal with that. And so do you think, not, not look, we're talking about some theoretical things and I'm going to get painfully practical here. But when we're talking about things um, like a global corporate tax, when we're talking about sort of, you know, uh, uh, tax havens and things, do you think it's more than rhetoric that we heard coming out of the G7? You know, I think a lot of folks already see these carve outs. The UK is like, yes, everything but finance. You know, France is going to be like everything but wine. Like everyone's going to have uh, their thing. Or, or do you actually think that the temperature uh, quite literally, but also figuratively, uh, of the room is such that these conversations are in earnest. These are just because we're in a new moment. These conversations that maybe weren't, were just lip service are actually real. I'm a yes, cynic, no, so always fill me up with hope. 
uh, for sure. I mean, I'm also cynic, but I think we also need to, I mean, and there is always a, um, a gap between ideology and reality, between rhetoric and policy. I mean, we, anybody who has been following politics for a bit knows that perfectly. But, you know, ideology and discourse also have a function and have a point. I mean, uh, at the height of neoliberalism, politicians were overtly actually making the point that they wanted a more unequal world. The inequality was a good thing, mm. right? Uh, because in moments of complete hegemony of a certain ideology, uh, uh, there is a very strong correspondence between what, what they say and, and what they do. So the fact alone that now they are not doing that anymore and that they are trying to present a different world or a different policy, I think is significant also because, how would you say, uh, there is a certain freedom of, of, of maneuver for uh, policy away from the ideology that is expressed publicly but you can only go uh, to a certain distance away from that. Otherwise, it gets to a point of incoherence between what you say and what you do that becomes uh, politically too, too costly. Um, I mean, this change I mean, this change in global corporate taxation is completely insufficient. I mean, it's ridiculous that companies basically pay less than the people like, like you and me, that the, yeah. the, uh, the middle class and the working class is just outrageous. But still, the very fact that they are starting to do something about that is already something significant, as it also interesting how they are doing that, basically by each state reclaiming some of the power of minimum taxation, rather than finding, for example, a real global agreement, whatever, a UN level, a completely multilateral agreement that has proven to be politically impracticable. I mean, for sure. I mean, there will be very strong resistance from many forces that don't want that to happen. Uh, why is that? Because the corporations have amassed so much wealth in tax havens. I mean, numbering almost really trillions. I mean, half trillion Apple, half trillion Google, and other companies. Now, imagine. I mean, we know from history, right? The ones uh, the the super rich amass a lot of money. They are wealth hoarders. That's mm -hmm. what they are. They don't want to give it away. They don't want to give away one penny because they know that if they start giving away one penny, uh, that has a demonstration effect and people will ask for much more than a penny. Yeah? Uh, yet at the same time, it is clear that this is politically unsustainable, right? that the public, and I think opinion polls, Gallup, many recent opinion polls really show that. I mean, from, from, uh, for example, how much the public now wants to raise taxes on the rich, whatever, 70% wants higher taxes mm -hmm. for the rich. And at some point, something has got to give. I mean, they cannot sustain that discrepancy between what people want and what people are given. Right. The gap is where trouble arises over and over again throughout history. Look, this is, uh, you know, a, a great book, and I would encourage folks, uh, because the case is made very clearly and very well. Uh, where can people pick this up? I mean, ideally from Verso website, if you want to bypass... Yes, it is a Verso Ama book. Yeah, yeah, this is what we're looking for, our That's alternative Verso routes. Books. Yes. So on Verso Books uh, Plus, I mean, if people are a Verso, uh, Verso Book Club subscriber, they can get it uh, in, in that way. Obviously, bookshops. Uh, I've already seen some book sightings uh, at different bookshops in the UK and hopefully soon in the US. 
And yes, I mean, it is officially out 31st of August, but it's already now in mid-August available in some uh, select bookshops. Are you going to get a chance to do a virtual and or real book tour? I know it's still hard uh, right now with, you know, people worried about renewed lockdowns and things. Yes, I'm hoping to launch it in mid-September in London and do some presentation in the UK, Germany, France uh, and Italy. And then in spring 2022, actually, I'm planning to go to the U.S. and do some book presentations there. And that'd be a very good way to to debate some of these ideas, because I think we are all eager to go back to some face-to-face debating after all these uh, period of, of online debating. And how can people find out those dates? Is the easiest way to follow you on Twitter or uh, is there a website or what's the easiest way? Yes, the easiest way is to follow me on Twitter. And what's your handle? My handle is, I mean, it's difficult to spell my handle in in English, but say it's Paolo Gerbaudo. It's my name and surname. And we're going to put it right up there in the graphic as we're saying it right now. Javal will put it up there. I'm your PR agent. I'm like, you got to have a website. We got to have to, you know, we got to make this happen. Uh, Put up the dates and the tour. And uh, really, it's a great book and encouraging everyone to read it. Thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate you. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Committed, 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 committed,